Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. Uh, I hope that it's encouraging to you and inspiring to you. I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into the scriptures. And I hope that you're able to do that with some people around you, with some community. Um, but if you don't have that, we would love to invite you into the community here at Restore. If you want to take a next step, get more connected, you can just go to restoreaustin.org connect, fill out a card on there, and I will personally reach out to you in the days after you do that. And if you want to grab coffee with me or just get more information about the church, I will make myself available to you for that. As you will hear, we are in this thing called a year around the table, and it really comes from this vision that God's given us that Restore would be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus. So A, I hope that you experience the extravagant love of Jesus as you check this message out. And B, if you don't have a table to sit at, we want to invite you to Jesus' table here at Restore. Back in the 1970s, the average American adult was exposed to about 500 advertisements each day. Okay, 1970s, 500 ads a day. By 2007, that number had jumped to 5,000. Today, due to the widespread use of smartphones and social media, experts believe most of us see about 10,000 advertisements each and every day. Just sit with that for a moment. 10,000 ads. 10,000 ads with a, a singular message, right? You need this. That's what advertising is. You, you, you need this. You need this to be happy. You need this to stay safe. You need this to find inner peace. You need this to be a good parent or a partner or a pet owner. You need this to be the best student or teacher or leader or employee that you can be. And now what we need and why we need it, those things are kind of ever-changing depending on the product and the target audience. But the underlying message is the same. You need this. Now, this messaging starts early. In 1983, marketers spent about $100 million advertising to children. That was in 1983. Today, that number is over $15 billion. $15 billion annually spent marketing to children. Now, if you have kids and they ever watch kids' YouTube, you know how prevalent this really is. 10,000 times a day, ever since we were kids, we are given the message that we need something we don't have right? We need something we don't have. We've literally spent our entire lives being told that we don't have enough. And all of this messaging, combined with kind of the, the culture that we live in, creates something in us called a scarcity mindset. I want you to raise your hand up if you ever heard of a scarcity mindset. In her fantastic book, Daring Greatly, Brene Brown talks about this scarcity mindset. Here's what she says. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. And we spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of things of what we didn't get or what we didn't get done that day. 
We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to the reverie of lack. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. Scarcity is the never enough problem. Now, there are many definitions for a scarcity mindset, but I like Brene's the best. Scarcity is the never enough problem. When we have a scarcity mindset, we believe falsely that we'll never have enough and that in turn will never be enough. This mindset is so pervasive and harmful that WebMD actually has an entire entry dedicated to it. And in it, you find that studies have shown that scarcity mindset lowers your IQ by as many as 14 points, makes it harder to solve problems, make plans, reason logically, focus on a task, and make decisions. It even makes impulse control more difficult. And we end up doing things that we know are damaging to us, all because we feel this inadequacy, this never enough. I don't think I've ever seen a more vivid example of the scarcity mindset than during the early days of the pandemic. As things shut down, right, you remember this? We all had to adjust, like, our routines and our expectations and really our entire lives, right, around the new normal. But the thing I remember the most vividly about that time was the hoarding. You remember this? Folks were stocking up on food, toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and masks, and more. Some people, you saw them on the news, had to rent entire storage units just to keep all of the supplies that they were stashing away. It was, it was nuts. Now, although a scarcity mindset is certainly pervasive in our culture, the problem is not unique to us. It is the result of sin. And because it's the result of sin, humanity has been battling against it ever since sin entered the world at the very beginning. One example from the Old Testament is after God frees the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Now, chances are you, you've heard this story, right? God sends Moses to Pharaoh to demand the release of Israelites and actually some other ethnic minorities from slavery there in Egypt. Pharaoh says no over and over and over again, so God sends this series of plagues. And eventually, Pharaoh relents, and he grants the enslaved people their freedom, only to change his mind moments later and begin chasing after them, trying to recapture them. And as they are fleeing from Egypt and the Egyptian army, their path, right, is blocked by the Red Sea. And then God does one of the most amazing miracles in the history of the world. He parts the Red Sea, and the formerly enslaved folks run through on dry ground. And after the last of them are through, God causes the Red Sea to crash back down upon the pursuing Egyptian army, and the people are granted their full freedom once and for all. But the Exodus, which is what the book is called, where all of this is recorded, the Exodus is only kind of just beginning. Because on the other side of the Red Sea, God begins leading these folks to the Promised Land. That's a part of the country filled with kind of everything they would ever need. Now keep that in mind. A part of the land filled with everything they would ever need. They would always have enough. But as they walk toward the promised land through the desert, they start to grumble about their perceived lack. And you can kind of hear the scarcity mindset. Exodus 16, verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Kind of a dramatic version of the scarcity mindset there. <laughs> now remember, God has just rescued them from slavery under a ruthless and evil leader in Egypt. They had just watched God part the Red Sea so they could walk through on dry ground. And in the chapter right before this, 
They're all singing a song about how God is worthy of their praise and their trust because he keeps meeting their needs. But as soon as things start to get a little difficult, they revert back, back to that scarcity mindset. Now, let me show you what I mean here. God is responding to their grumbling about not having enough, verse 4. So then the Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough, remember that key word, enough, for that day. So God gives them food, right, but only enough for daily consumption. And that's because God is a kind and loving father who desires fullness of life for all of his kids, and he's trying to rid them of their scarcity mindset by only providing enough food for one day at a time. So Moses gathers everyone together, and he says this. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Everyone's to gather enough, as much as you need. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. Don't save it. Don't hoard it. The command is explicit, right? Only gather enough for your needs. Don't gather more than that, and don't try to save it for the future. Because God is saying, I have given you enough for today, and I will give you enough again tomorrow. But do the people obey? Verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. Even after seeing God provide for them over and over again, the scarcity mindset is so entrenched in them, in us, that they have been convinced that they won't have enough. Even with the promise of daily bread, even with the demonstration of daily bread, miraculously rained down on them from heaven, they still try to hoard. They still try to stash the extra away. God's promise to provide us with our daily provision, it's not just confined to the Old Testament. Jesus teaches us about it as well. Now, we're in the middle of this series called Part of the Family. And in this series, we're kind of walking our way through the Lord's Prayer as our guide for what it means to be part of God's family. Now, God designed the Lord's Prayer as this communal practice for the family of God as we pursue the way of Jesus together. It kind of instructs us, the family of God, on how we are supposed to live and move in the world. Now, so far, we've covered the first two stanzas of the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That first section, it covers our identity and then our mission, right? The church is this radically diverse and inclusive family of siblings who have been tasked with bringing little pieces of heaven to earth. That's what we talked about last week. Now, the rest of the prayer gives instructions on how we lean into our identity and how we live out our mission. We are a family of God tasked with bringing little pieces of heaven to earth. How do we do that? That's kind of the instructions of the rest of the prayer. That's how Jesus formed this. So today we're going to focus on the next line, and it's just one line, Matthew 6, 11. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus is teaching his followers that a core part of who we are and what we are called to do centers around fighting against the scarcity mindset and relying on God for daily provision. But God isn't raining down manna from heaven for us like he did for the freed slaves on their way to the promised land. So the question then becomes, what is this daily bread that Jesus is talking about here? 
Well, our first clue as we seek to answer that question is that the Greek word, the word that Jesus spoke, the word most of the New Testament, the language most of the New Testament is written in, that Greek word for daily used in this sentence by Jesus, it occurs nowhere else in Scripture. This is the only time it's used. In fact, according to scholars, this word is nowhere to be found in any ancient literature at all. So what does that mean? It means Jesus made it up. Okay? This isn't a word. Jesus made this word up in Greek. Now, there's a Greek word normally used for daily, but Jesus doesn't use it here. He seemingly creates this new word out of thin air. And as you can imagine, there are a variety of opinions, of opinions about why Jesus did this and what this new word really means. Some people think it's an indication that the bread is only material, okay? Just true, literal bread, just like for the people in the Old Testament. This was all, this was all it meant. Jesus was saying, pray that God would give you literal, physical sustenance for each and every day. This group of people point to Jesus giving out the bread at the Last Supper, feeding the 5,000, all all these other miracles, right, where where he's literally giving bread to people. Now, another group believes this new word indicates that the bread is only spiritual. We are to pray for God to meet our spiritual needs with spiritual nourishment. Now, folks who hold this view, they point to a story like Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And then Jesus says, though, right, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So he kind of spiritualizes it, right? So those are the first two groups. And then finally, there's a third group. These folks believe that the word was made up by Jesus to convey our daily need for both spiritual and material needs to be met by God. The bread God offers us is both physical and metaphysical. I believe the third group is right. Because the kingdom of God, y'all, is always both physical and metaphysical. It is social and spiritual. It is concerned with both salvation and justice, righteousness. Anyone who tells you the kingdom of God is only about one or the other has a view of God that is much too small. God is in all of it. He wants you and I to experience fullness of life, not just spiritually, not just physically. But holistically, that's what his desire is for us. And I find the examples used by the first two groups kind of ironic in that both stories include Jesus actually meeting both spiritual and physical needs. Right? He gives literal bread to the disciples around the Last Supper table, but he also makes it clear that that bread represents the sacrifice he's about to make on the cross, that he is the bread. Jesus does claim to be the bread of life in John chapter 6, but that happens after he feeds literal bread to thousands and thousands of people. As humans, we have both spiritual and material needs. Jesus knows that. And this line of the Lord's Prayer is meant to remind us to rely on God's provision daily for both of those things. Now, God meets our needs in a variety of ways, right? Sometimes it's miraculous, like the manna in the desert. I know many of you, many of us, we have stories of like, extra money showing up right when we need it. Somebody randomly calling out of the blue and saying, hey, I have this for you. God told me to give it to you. Or maybe just getting a free meal like right at the right time. Somebody in the line in front of us at a fast food restaurant paying for the meal behind us, right? Little things like that where God just miraculously shows up. But other times, God meets our needs through the talents and abilities that he's given us. 
We work and we're compensated in a way that allows us to provide the things we need for ourselves and the people around us. And still other times, God meets our needs through someone else. Friends and family stepping up to help when we're in trouble. Our church family lending a hand when we need one. But the bottom line is this. No matter how God ends up meeting our needs, God has given humanity abundant resources for everyone to have enough. I want to say that again. This is very important. God has given humanity and the earth abundant resources for everyone to have enough. Really for everyone to have more than enough. But not everyone does. Why not? What has gone wrong? The answer is simply sin. See, God desires for every person to experience fullness of life. He has given humanity more than enough resources to make that desire a reality. And sin is anything and everything that gets in the way of that becoming a reality. But a primary manifestation of this sin is that scarcity mindset we've been talking about. Because the scarcity mindset causes people who actually have more than enough to believe they need more. It actually promotes the hoarding of resources. Instead of taking only what they need, people take more than they could ever use. There's a story in the Bible about this. Remember the the rich man, the rich fool actually is what the Bible calls him. The guy who has abundance, more and more and more. He has so much that he actually tears down his barns to build even bigger ones to hold all of his stuff. And then one night he dies and he meets the Lord and the Lord says, tonight your life is required of you. What will become of all that you have left behind? He says, well, what was the point of all of that? See, this hoarding of resources, it not only leads to a scarcity mindset in the person, the rich fool, so to speak, or many of us who have bought into it, who we struggle with anxiety, with fear, thinking we never, ever have enough. It's not only that. The hoarding of resources leads to poverty and to oppression. You see, when some people give in to the scarcity mindset, it always ends up leaving other people without their basic needs met. I want to give you a very timely example of what I'm talking about. It's a little bit of a history lesson, okay? So bear with me. In 1791, self-liberated slaves rose up against French colonial rule in what became known as the Haitian Revolution began. 1791. It ended in 1804, with Haiti officially declaring its independence from France, but the French refused to recognize Haitian independence for another 20 years. Then, in 1825, King Charles X said that France would recognize Haiti's independence, but it would come with a cost. Haiti was required to pay former French slave owners 150 million francs because these slave owners claimed to have lost income when they could no longer enslave the Haitian people. 150 million francs, just to give you an idea, is the modern equivalent of about $21 billion. The French delivered this demand by sailing 14 battleships carrying over 500 cannons into Port-au-Prince, literally surrounding the island. Haitian refusal would have certainly meant another war and possibly complete annihilation. As one writer put it, this was not diplomacy, it was extortion. So Haiti agrees. 
They agree to pay 150 million francs to the French, a number that amounted to 10 times Haiti's annual budget. Guess who they had to borrow money from in order to keep from defaulting on their first two payments? French and American banks. And the fees and extremely high compounding interest only drove the debt higher and higher. And we, the United States, began profiting off of the Haitians as well. By the late 1800s, 80% of Haiti's wealth was devoted to paying off this debt. Like almost 100 years later, 80% of their wealth was devoted to paying this debt to former slave owners. In 1914, the National City Bank of New York, which is now Citibank, was a primary holder of Haitian debt. They actually pressured Woodrow Wilson's administration into sending Marines to occupy Haiti for the purpose of taking half a million dollars from the Haitian reserves and bringing it back to the Citibank vaults because Haiti was late on a payment. Dan Sterling is a Virginia-based writer who writes for Forbes, and he's married to a Haitian national. In an article he wrote about this for Forbes, he says this, My father-in-law, he's also Haitian, still recalls the patriotic songs he was taught as a Haitian schoolboy. It's poignant lyrics urging all Haitians to reach into their own pockets and help the government raise the amount that was still owed to France. Thanks to voluntary contribution from Haiti's citizens, most of whom were desperately poor, the debt was finally settled in 1947. But decades of making regular payments had rendered the Haitian government chronically insolvent helping to create a pervasive climate of instability from which the country still hasn't recovered. France's demand for reparations from Haiti seems comically outrageous to us today, equivalent to a kidnapper suing his escaped hostage for the cost of fixing a window that had been broken during the escape. While France still ranks among the world's wealthiest nations, Haiti, with a per capita income of $350, a power grid that fails on a regular basis and a network of roads that's more than 50% unpaved is plagued by drought, food shortages, and a struggling economy. Now, obviously, there have been other factors which have contributed to the conditions in Haiti today. Natural disasters and corrupt governments, just to name a few. But 122 years of paying reparations to their former enslavers has been absolutely crippling. After 35 years of American occupation, you see those Marines that Woodrow Wilson sent in, they actually ended up staying for almost 25 years and then another 10 years of being on the committee that controlled all of the economics in Haiti. So after 35 years of American occupation and economic control, Haiti finally made their last payment, 1947, to Citibank. A scarcity mindset drove the colonizing French and Americans to believe that they needed to extract as much money as possible from this fledgling country. They had already stolen so many resources and literal lives from Africa and Haiti, but they were convinced that they needed to hoard even more. And the results for the Haitian people have been absolutely devastating. France had enough. The United States had enough. In fact, they had more than enough. 
But a scarcity mindset convinced them that they needed more. Today, y'all, Haiti has a per capita annual income almost 100 times lower than France, almost 200 times lower than us in the United States. According to Britannica, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere by a large margin and many measures, with four-fifths of its population living in absolute poverty. And they continue to struggle with violence and corruption and unrest. Now, when we learn all of that, it helps us understand why 15,000 Haitians came to our border seeking asylum this week. I'm not up here claiming to have all the answers. I just want us to see the catastrophic consequences of what happens when a scarcity mindset takes hold. When we take more than what we need. It's a zero-sum game. When we take more than we need, someone else doesn't have enough. Oppression, extortion, violence, and evil, all in the name of hoarding some extra resources. So how do we fight against this? How do we make this right? If God said, if Jesus taught us how to pray and he said, I want you to be a part of bringing heaven to earth, how do we bring heaven to earth in a situation like this? Well, God has already given us the answer. It's daily bread. While talking about this section of the Lord's Prayer, E.M. Bounds, a famous pastor and author, wrote this, Bread for today is bread enough. Bread for today is bread enough. The Lord's Prayer is meant to be a daily reminder to rely on God for our enough and then to give our extra to anyone who doesn't have enough. It's that simple. We receive only what we need and we help others get what they need. And we expose scarcity for the lie that it is. There's plenty of bread to go around. If we will all stop hoarding resources and start sharing with others, we will find that there is more than enough for everyone. You see, we've made the grave mistake of believing that the answer to scarcity is affluence. But it's not. The opposite of scarcity isn't affluence. The opposite of scarcity is enough. The opposite of scarcity is not affluence. That's a lie. The opposite of scarcity is enough. In a book called Our Shared Witness, A Voice for Justice and Reconciliation, a Palestinian Christian bishop named Munib Yunan uses a helpful anecdote to illustrate this truth. He says, leaders from all religious groups were sent to hell and heaven for an exploration trip. When they landed in hell, they saw tables filled with food. Nevertheless, the people they met were all very thin. The visiting leaders asked why they were all very thin, even though there was plenty of food on the tables. Yes, you're right, the people answered, we have plenty of food. The problem is that we are only allowed to eat it with spoons with handles so long that we are unable to feed ourselves. The group went on to heaven and found the same scene, tables filled with plenty of food to eat. But unlike in hell, the people in heaven were well-fed and enjoyed their lives. When they asked why they were all so well-fed and enjoying life, the people answered, even though we only have these long spoons to eat with, we have discovered that we just have to feed each other in order to be fed. We just have to feed each other in order to be fed. See, the use of heaven and hell in this story, it's not about the afterlife. 
Heaven describes what it looks like when we understand our shared humanity and collectively combat the scarcity mindset by taking care of one another. And hell depicts what it looks like when we allow a scarcity mindset to take hold and only view resources through our own self-centered vision. But in a culture that glamorizes affluence and encourages hoarding like the one we live in, receiving only what we need and then helping others get what they need, it's not normal. Battling against the scarcity mindset takes courage and it takes vulnerability. I love how our very own Chris Sims says it. He says it takes great vulnerability in order to completely destroy the scarcity mindset. Even more so, it takes a community breaking the scarcity mindset to produce a counter culture. It takes everyone asking themselves, what is my role within my community to produce the type of culture that fights hunger by looking out the window and inviting in the neighbor to break bread? Brene puts it even more succinctly. In a world where scarcity and shame dominate and feeling afraid has become second nature, vulnerability is subversive. You see, fighting against the scarcity mindset with courageous vulnerability is subversive. Like Chris said, it creates a counterculture in the most beautiful way. It paves a new direction. But even though this counterculture, this new way is incredibly rare, it's not without precedent. 2,000 years ago, the very first Christian church created a counterculture just like this. The biblical book called Acts chronicles their journey, and in chapter 2 it says this, All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, Those who were being saved. How beautifully subversive is that? That's what it looks like to be a part of God's family. What if we did this? What if we did this? As a group, as a community, as a family of God, what if we allowed no need in our church family to go unmet? Because we used any and all extra that we had to give to somebody who doesn't have enough. Think about it. a family, a community like that. This is what it means to be part of, the, part of the family. This is how God designed us to be. This is what it looks like to bring heaven to earth. We rely on Jesus for our enough, and we give our extra to anyone who doesn't have enough. We receive only what we need, and we help others get what they need. This is our calling. This is our mission handed down to us by Jesus. And it's our legacy handed down to us by the first church. Let's make it a reality in our church and in our world today. Amen? Okay, let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are our provider of daily provision. 
that you rain bread down upon us in a, a myriad of ways, sometimes through the miraculous, sometimes through the, the jobs and connections you've provided us, sometimes through our family and friendships. God, you are so good. Like we just sang, all my life you have been faithful. God, I pray that just like you are faithful, that we would be faithful with what you have given to us. That we would be faithful to take only what we need and to give our extra to anyone who doesn't have enough. God, make this a reality in our church, in our lives, in our city, in our world, and use us to do it. We are here, Lord. Give us today our daily bread and then help us remember to give anything else we have to those who don't have it. Meet our needs and then use us, work through us to meet the needs of others, we pray. All this in Jesus' name.